You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. Well, we're continuing our Ask Anything series tonight, and I'm excited about the two questions we're going to dive into. We're going to go straight at it, make sure we have enough time to deal with both of these, but these are questions that... uh, Y'all have been submitting over the past few months, and so these questions are your questions and stuff that you want to talk about. So the first one tonight was submitted by a junior at UNT, and the question is, all right, uh, the question is, uh, what would be your greatest advice to give someone going into the ministry? As we deal with this, and I I realize as we go into this that some of you in here are like, I, I know for a fact that I'm not called to ministry, and so I don't want you to check out because I think you're going to hear some stuff in this text that is, uh, God is going to use in a big way in your life. But I, I do want to start by reiterating something that I said a few weeks ago, uh, and, and that's this. You don't have to be <coughs> a pastor or a missionary or a church planter to be uh, on mission for God. Um, however, some of you need to be. Some of you are being called to be. You know, I shared this a couple weeks ago. Uh, we, we've culturally gotten into this, um, we, we've, we've latched on to a couple phrases, phrases like uh, what I just said, you don't have to be in ministry to be in ministry, or um, you, we're, we're all missionaries, whether you work at a coffee shop or you're in business or you're working for a church, we're all missionaries. We, we've latched on to phrases like that, and those phrases are true. However, because we've latched on to phrases like that, we've, we've forgotten to emphasize the fact that some of you are being called into ministry. Some of you are called to be pastors. Some of you are called to be missionaries. And some of you are called to be church planters. Um, some of you are called to literally pack up your bags and go to the other side of the world. Um, it's so cool. I, I found out this week two of my former students who got married um, a few years ago, they are packing their bags and moving to South Asia um, this summer. Like, not to go on a mission trip, not to go for a year or two, they are moving there. They're, they're leaving everything going there. And, and here's the crazy thing. Both of them were business majors, like many of you in here. And both of them, after graduating, went into business, uh, were very successful, have been very successful in business, but over the past really few months, um, they went to this country in February, and God was already working on their heart before this, but when they went in February, God opened all these doors and revealed that he was calling them to move to South Asia uh, to begin working uh, in the anti-human trafficking, um, I guess, I don't know, call that industry, but they, they're working to stop human trafficking in this country. And because of their skills and their giftedness, that's where God is moving them, and they're going to be working with an organization over there. I talked, to, I talked to one of them on the phone today, and he said, it's scary, but no doubt what God wants us to do. And he said he put in his two weeks notice almost two weeks ago. This Friday is his last day. And they are leaving the U.S. and moving, leaving family, friends, everything behind. It's crazy, but it's incredible. And some of you in this room have been designed by God, created by God to do things like that. Some of you in this room are, are called to lead a church one day, to pastor God's people one day. And so the question on the table is, what would be your greatest advice to give someone going into ministry? And I, and I want to start <clears throat> and really answer this question by looking at 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 5. And, and listen to what he says. He says, verse 1, 1 Peter 5, verse 1, he says, So I exhort the elders among you 
as a fellow elder, this is, this is Peter writing, he says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God. He says, shepherd the flock of God. You might underline that word, shepherd. And what you think of, when you think of the role of a minister in a church, it reveals so much. It reveals a lot about your understanding of that position. What you think of when you think of a pastor reveals so much about your understanding about that position. It reveals so much about what has been modeled for you. And it reveals so much about whether or not you yourself are called to fill that role. Some people, when they think of the role pastor, they might think of a CEO. Or some might think of a coach. Some might think of a professor. Others might think of rock star. But whatever it is you think of, it reveals a lot. And Paul, he compares pastors to shepherds because that's likely what he thought of. That's obviously what he thought of when he thought of pastors. Um, a, a couple of you, actually, no, this one, a couple, this was this, this past summer. I took a, a few students from here to Ethiopia. And we were in a pretty remote area of Ethiopia, and, and we're, we'd been driving for a few hours. And so uh, I really had to pee. And so I told our, the guy driving our truck, um, hey, dude, I got to pee, so pull over. And we're out in the middle of nowhere, so we pull off on the side of the road. And I hop out, and I start peeing. Well, as I'm peeing, um, out of the brush come these two shepherd boys, um, and they're herding some of their cattle along. And it's so funny, like when you're in remote areas, uh, whether it's Africa, South America, anywhere where the, 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 the local people are not white, they are so fascinated by white. And, and I'm like, I'm, I'm not just white, I'm like really white. And so they're so fascinated by white people. And so they will, it doesn't matter what you're doing, they're going to stop and they're going to awkwardly watch you. So I'm standing there on the side of the road uh, peeing, and uh, they just stop and they're just like watching. And, uh, and so... Another example of this, I'll come back to that in a second. Another example of this was uh, in Zimbabwe a couple years ago. Again, another very remote part, northern Zimbabwe on the Zambezi River close to uh, Zambia. And uh, me and this, uh, well, you know, when we're out there, you bathe like in whatever water source you have. And so there was like this creek-ish river thing. And so um, we went and bathed over there. And, and so it was me and a couple of the guys went and bathed in this river. And uh, it was hilarious because there's like this, you know, I don't, I guess you'd call it a bridge, and, and two of the locals came walking by, and, uh, and we're taking off our clothes, getting in the river, and they just stop, and they're watching everything we are doing, and it's like, you don't do that, you know, like, you don't watch, you don't just stand there and watch somebody take a shower, you know, like, and that, so they're just standing there watching us, you know, get into the river and bathe, and all of a sudden, they start to totally freak out and start to yell at us, and so we look up at them, and they point to the wrist like that, and, and they noticed I was wearing my watch, and they were worried that I was about to get my watch wet and ruin my watch because they were wanting me to take off my watch. And I, and I said, no, no, no. And I stuck it under. And they go, <gasps> like that. <clears throat> and I pulled it up and I said, it, you know, I did that. And they go, you know, they had this crazy look on their face. And then they just kept on watching us uh, bathe. So, um, I don't, anyway. So going back to these shepherd boys, like, so we ran into these shepherd boys. And it's so crazy, uh, you know, going to these different countries, you know, getting to observe the people, and specifically shepherds, because we don't really have shepherds, you know, in Dallas or Denton, but getting to observe, uh, observe shepherds, you know, there's so much that I've learned, there's so much that's, that's interesting to see about their lifestyle, and, and it really, I think, gives so much insight into why Paul uses the illustration of a shepherd to be compared to a pastor. There's really a, f- a few characteristics I want to point out. One is shepherds are lonely, 
You know, most of the time, you know, we ran into two shepherd boys when I got out of the car to go pee. But most of the time, it's just one. And he's out there by himself with his flock of sheep or flock of whatever. It's just him. He's alone. Shepherds are lonely. Secondly, shepherds are dirty. And they get dirty. You know, if, if a sheep gets sick, the shepherd has to get down and care for it. If, if the sheep gets sick or gets hurt, he has to get down there and fix it or care for it, pick it up. You know, he doesn't like yell at it from a distance. He has to get down on his hands and knees with a sheep. And I don't know if you've ever seen a sheep or a goat up close, but they're not like the cleanest animals. Shepherds get dirty. And then lastly, shepherds risk their lives protecting their sheep. I mean, sheep. When, when a wolf comes or a predator comes, there's only one thing standing between those sheep and that predator, and that's the shepherd. Shepherds risk their lives for their flock. And at the time, at the time Peter wrote this, um, the, the church was under heavy opposition and, and heavy persecution from the government. And that's true of many places in the, US, in, in the, in the world uh, today. Christians are being heavily oppressed and persecuted. Not so much here. In, in, in our context, the pastors that we most often see are the really popular ones who are leading these big mega churches. They have satellite campuses. They're writing books. They have super popular podcasts. And none of that is, is bad But if that's what we think it means to be a pastor, to be famous and powerful, then we're missing the point. Pastors are like shepherds. And so he says, shepherd the flock. This is verse 2. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So so Paul says, basically, three clear things here. And in saying these things, he really creates three great questions for us to ask ourselves in regard to whether or not we're called into this type of ministry. And so the first question is this. Do you want to be a shepherd? You look at that first part. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. You might underline the word willingly. You know, Peter may have been thinking as he's writing this that the people he's writing to may have all these different ideas of what a pastor is like. And, and the same is true in this room. Because there's people in this room who may think a pastor is like a CEO, a coach, professor, rock star, whatever, Peter found it necessary to say, no, 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 a pastor is like a shepherd. So some of you, you might like the idea of being a CEO. You might like the idea of being a coach or professor or love the idea of being a rock star, but do you like the idea of being a shepherd? Do you want to be a shepherd? Are you willing to lead a life of loneliness? Are you willing to get down and get dirty with your uh, protecting your people, caring for your people? Are you willing to risk your life for your people? You know, the the, the pastor is the one who has to stand up and lead and and stand in the way of attackers, you know, physically or literally, metaphorically, whatever, but like he has to be the one to stand hard on, on, on truth. And that's not, that's not easy to do. So are you willing to do that stuff? First uh, Thessalonians 2.8 says, Paul's writing, and he says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. I read this the other day and slipped it in for tonight because I was thinking about this. It seems like so many people want to preach, but few people want to pastor. 
And God has called us to be pastors, not just preachers. We'll be so much more effective at preaching when we become more committed to pastoring. And to hear Paul's affectionate words for that church in Thessalonica, it's so convicting because he obviously cared for them and didn't just want to like preach the gospel to them. He wanted to pastor them. So do you want to be a shepherd? That's the first thing. Secondly, second question that comes out of what Peter writes, what's the real reason that you want to be in ministry? Those of you who are considering that calling, what's the real reason that you want to be in ministry? You look back at verse uh, two and three, he says, shepherd the flock of God, Skipping ahead, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Right here you might underline, not for shameful gain. The question isn't, are you willing to be the next big and famous pastor of a megachurch? The question is, are you willing to be a shepherd? Jesus is looking for shepherds, not aspiring celebrities to lead his church. So what's the real reason you want to be in ministry? Is it for the potential fame, popularity, attention you might get? Is it for the Twitter followers? Is it for the money? Hopefully not. But, you know, what, what's the real reason that you want to be in ministry? Um, you know, my mentors in college, when I started to walk down this path of ministry and, and still today, um, they've said something to me as I was considering this call over and over and over. They said, listen, if, if, if you can picture yourself doing anything else other than ministry, then you're not called to ministry. They said, if you can picture yourself doing anything else other than ministry, you're not called to ministry. Now, honestly, I was like, where, you know, that's probably some catchy sounding phrase or statement that they'd heard passed down over time, and it has no biblical backing or whatever. And, uh, you know, some people just say stuff because it sounds good. And then I realized, well, they had plagiarized that from a guy named uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a very well-known pastor in England, uh, and he plagiarized that from Charles Spurgeon, who was also a very well-known pastor in England. And there's wisdom in that statement. It's, you know, not out of the Bible, but there's wisdom in that statement from God-fearing men who have been in ministry. And, and, and having been in ministry now for almost eight years, I've realized what they're saying. I mean, ministry is not easy. You know, most people, when they see pastors, all they see is what happens on the platform. And I love this, and I love everything about my job for the most part. There's some things I don't like. But I, I, I love my job, and we love our jobs. But I guess what I'm saying is there's so much that happens, and there's so many challenges, and there's so many struggles in that, that if you can picture yourself doing anything else, then at some point, probably early on, you're going to quit and go do whatever it is you can picture. I hope I didn't lose you with that, but can you picture yourself doing anything else outside of ministry? What's the real reason you want to be in ministry? So first question, do you want to be a shepherd? Second, what's the real reason you want to be in ministry? Third is, is there any reason that people should follow you? Third question that Peter gives us is, is there any reason that people should follow you? You look at what he says in verse 3. He says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. You might underline there being examples. As goes the leadership, so goes the church. Is there any reason that people should follow you? I mean, I mean, think about this. If the leaders are compassionate and they're loving and they're caring and they're concerned with other people, then the people they're leading are going to be also. If, if the leaders are, if they're evangelistic, sharing the gospel, mission-minded, concerned about God's mission. They're taking the initiative to reach outside their normal circle of friends to pull in other people to the flock. If that's how the leaders are, that's the example they're setting, then that's how the people they're leading are going to be. 
If the leaders, they're generous with their time, their money, their resources, if they're selfless, if they're servant-hearted, then that's how the people they're leading are going to be. If the, leaders are, if, if the leaders value holiness and revere God, then that's how the people that they're leading are going to be. But if the leaders are lazy and passive and reactive instead of proactive, then that's how the people they're leading are going to be. And if the leaders, they, they, they're not concerned about the Great Commission, they're not concerned about God's mission and God's heart, then neither will their people. And if they're selfish with their time, their money, their, their resources, everything, then the people are going to be selfish as well. And, and if they show no fear of God and no concern for being pure, then neither will the people that they're leading. So do you want to be a shepherd? What's the real reason you want to be in ministry? And is there any reason that people should follow you? You read on, look at verse 4, and it says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. It says you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's a conditional promise. If this over here happens, then you can be sure that you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And there's a lot of people who get into ministry for the wrong reasons. There's a lot of people, honestly, who, I guess I shouldn't say a lot, but there are plenty of people who get into ministry and they exploit their position for personal gain. And the, and the people who do that can expect something completely different than this unfading crown of glory. James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Those who lead, those who pastor are going to be held accountable for how they pastor. Hebrews 13.17 says that pastors will have to give an account for how they kept watch over their people. So we're going to be held accountable. It's a, it's a huge deal. And then verse 5, he goes on to say, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Listen to that first phrase again. He says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. If you are unwilling to sit under the leadership of God's church now, then you will be unfit to lead God's church later. If you are unwilling to sit under the leadership of God's church now, then you'll be unfit to lead God's church later. A little bit of my story is this. In college, when I began to feel called to ministry, I, I hated the church. I did not like the church. And I think I've shared some of this before. When I started to ask God, what, you know, what's next I was wrestling with going to seminary to get my master's and, and wrestling with going into this parachurch organization, in other words, this Christian ministry that was not a church. And I accepted this position to work for this Christian ministry that was not a church. And the whole time, this church was calling me, say that, saying that they wanted me to consider coming to work for them. And I kept telling them over the phone and very politely, but I said, look, I have no desire to work for a church. I'm not going to work for a church, so stop wasting your time and calling me. Now, I said it nice, but on the inside, what I was feeling is I don't like the church. And there were different reasons for me not liking the church. But the reality is if, if, if you don't like the church, if you hate the church, if you badmouth the church, if you take cheap shots at the church, that's someone's bride that you're messing with. You look at Scripture, and over and over and over, the Bible, God's Word, compares the church to God's bride. Now, look, I'm not married, but if someday I get married and you badmouth my bride, I will gladly go to jail to make sure it never happens again. 
But we're not talking about my bride or another dude's bride. We are talking about the bride of God. We are talking about God's bride. I was reading the other day, 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 20, and it says, The men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? I don't know if you're familiar with 1 Samuel 6, but that's the story where the Philistines had come and they had, they had stolen the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and the Ark of the Covenant in, in the Old Testament, like that represented God's presence. Like that's where God was. And, and so they stole it from the Israelites. And they took it and they put it in their temple uh, to their god Dagon. And I don't know if you remember what happens next, but this Dagon, this statue, they, they put the Ark of the Covenant in there. They essentially stick God in their temple with Dagon, and they leave. And they come back the next day, and Dagon, this massive statue, has fallen down face first in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And so they pick Dagon back up, and then they leave, and they come back the next day. The next day they come back, and now Dagon has fallen and crumbled into pieces in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And that's when the people began to say, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? We have not truly encountered God until we've said this. We have not truly encountered or met God until we've realized this. Nobody can stand in his presence because nobody is that holy. And nobody can stand in his presence because nobody has that kind of power. And we should fear God and we should fear him enough to respect his bride, the church. So Peter says, if you're not willing to sit under the leadership of God's church now, then you'll be unfit to lead God's church later. So the question on the table is, what advice would I give to those who are going into ministry? First, don't take the call lightly. Are you, are you sure that you're called into the ministry? Are you sure you want to be a shepherd? But beyond that, I'll give you four practical suggestions. One is this, finish your degree. You know, I have a lot of people come to me and say, okay, you know, half what you are a sophomore in college, they're, I don't know, um, biology major, business major, whatever, and they, uh, they're like, should I, should I transfer to a Bible college? You know, there's different suggestions on this, and there's not necessarily, you know, you need to follow God's leading on your life, okay? But, but my advice to you is finish your degree, finish your biology degree, your business degree, whatever it is. I, I graduated with a business marketing degree, and the reality is you're, you're going to need to go later on to um, to work on your master's, get seminary. So finish your degree. It's going to be helpful in the future. You never know how God might use that in your life. Um, but secondly, you got to consider, okay, seminary or, or go straight into ministry. What does that look like? Now, a lot of people would, uh, in the past, have advised go straight into seminary, knock out a master's degree in two to four years. Um, I, I went in and got an internship. It was supposed to be a 10-month internship, turned into four and a half years at a church. Uh, in West Texas, oh, it's terrible. Um, no, I love the church, I really did. And West Texas was decent. But I, I didn't start seminary until later on. I started seminary a, a, about nine months after I graduated, January 2007. And I'm still working on my seminary degree. Uh, I'll probably finish 2017. I, I've had to call the, I, I called the seminary, I go to seminary in New Orleans, and I called them a couple times and said, look, I'm kind of mapping this out. I think I'm going to finish in about 10 years are you sure there's no like time limit for me finishing this degree? And, and multiple times I called over the phone and asked the same question, and they always said, no, there's no time limit. 
But like a year ago, I had this moment where I was like, oh, crud, I don't have any of this in writing. So I emailed the dean and was like, hey, I just need to make sure this is true. And so he emailed me back and said, yeah, it's true, no time limit. So I saved the email in a very special place so that if they ever say there was a time limit, I got evidence that it's uh, what they told me. But anyway, so seminary versus internship. Um, Third suggestion is this, serve in any way that you can now. Take every opportunity in the church or in ministry to serve. Because, one, if you don't have that desire, like if you don't just have that natural desire, then you're probably not called to ministry. But two, uh, God will use that in your life now to hone in, in your heart, in your mind, what you are specifically more called to do. You know, I, when, I, when I started feeling called, I had no idea what I was called to do, and I just started serving. And through serving, he revealed to me that I am terrible with kids. And through serving, he revealed to me that I'm terrible with this over here, terrible with that over there, but maybe, you know, this is an area where he's gifted me. And maybe over here is an area where he's given me a passion. So serve in any way you can. And again, if you don't have that desire to serve in any way you can, then you're probably not called to ministry. And then the fourth just suggestion, and this is really more of a request, um, when we're done tonight, I really want you to come and, and talk to me. I, I'd really like to know who you are if you're feeling like God's calling you into ministry. So that would be my advice to give to those going into ministry. Question number two. Uh, this was submitted by a senior at UNT. Um, I'm going to get a drink real quick. kind of a long question. So here we go. <clears throat> How do we handle situations when people are on the street begging for money? I'm currently spending a semester abroad in Europe. Where I currently live, the main street and train station are filled with people asking for money, and I feel guilty if I ignore them, but nervous if I acknowledge some of them. I always use the excuse that I don't have any money, but in my heart, I know I probably have more than they do. So the question on the table is, essentially, how do we handle beggars? What do we do? And I honestly, I wanted to get to this last week, but we didn't get to either of these questions last week. And uh, I was going to skip the question because I, I knew in order to skip it, we'd have to um, push some other things out of the way that we were planning on doing this, uh, doing this week. Um, but then over the past couple days, I've had this question come up so many different times, people asking me. Some, some random guy called me the other day and he was asking me about something different. And he goes, hey, random question. And then he asked me this exact question. So many people have been asking this. And the reality is I know that so many of us, this is a question that we wrestle with. I mean, what, what do you do? I mean, I want you to think. What do you do when you see a beggar or when you're approached by a beggar? I'm just going to, whether it's PC or not, I'm just going to tell you what most of us are probably thinking. Most of us, one of the first thoughts that goes through our mind is, what did this person do? This guy probably screwed up to get himself in this situation. Or most of us probably start to think, okay, what's this guy addicted to? This guy's, is this guy an alcoholic? Is she an alcoholic or whatever? What are they going to, you know, what are they spending their money on? Or we're thinking, man, I, I, you know, they look dirty. Uh, they probably don't smell very good. Or you're thinking, man, if I get too close, are they going to rob me? Or, or, or maybe you're thinking, you know, what lie are they going to tell me this time, you know? trying to buy gas to go to Midland or whatever. Um, what, what lie are they going to tell me? Or, or, um, or, or we're thinking there's no way this person knows Jesus. And it's interesting to see how different people respond to beggars. 
You know, some of you, when you're in a part of town or an area where you typically get approached, you kind of get in that, I'm looking down, I'm making eye contact, move quick, put my earbuds in, and I'm going, you know? I see some of y'all shaking your head. Or um, when you pull up at a stoplight and somebody's on the corner, it's like you don't make eye contact. I mean, you want to look because you're curious. You want to you read a sign, uh, and, and you're just curious as to their condition. But as soon as they turn there and look towards you, you're like, you know, uh, you look away. You don't want to make eye contact. Or if they approach you, then you might tell them something like, you know, sorry, I don't, I don't have any cash on me, even though either you do or you could easily go take your card to the ATM, get cash. Some of you call it, you're just like, no, like I really don't have any cash on me or anywhere. Can you hook me up with some cash? Uh, or, or some of you grab some spare change and give them spare change even though your, your wallet is full of cash. And, and then others of you, you empty your wallet, you give them your cash, but then you walk away feeling like you just got taken as a fool, um, feel like you just uh, gave your money to somebody who's going to go spend it on something that they didn't tell you they were going to spend it on. And then some of you, after you give, you walk away feeling so good about yourself and you want to tell everybody about it because you gave to a beggar. Some of you are like, look, it's not so much me uh, getting hit up by people on the streets begging. It's my roommate. Like, that's the beggar in my life. <laughs> how do I handle my roommate? Not how do I handle beggars. Well, I guess it is how do I handle beggars. My roommate's a beggar. Stealing all my milk and borrowing my bread, not paying me back or nothing. How do I handle my roommate? That's your question. I, I had, in my freshman year in college, I, I, when I was playing basketball still, um, one of my teammates, we all lived on the same hall in the, in the same dorm, and and one of my teammates, uh, his name is Hassan, and I hope one day he listens to this. But he would always come in my room and be like, Wadlow, I need some bread. And uh, I've, I was a freshman. He was a senior. So I was, of course, I'm going to give him, you know, whatever food I had. So I was like, yeah, it's in there. It's in this drawer. Well, he kept coming in, taking all my bread, taking all my food. And, uh, and then he, he was like, he never slept. So, and I'm, I'm, I go to bed, you know, somewhat early, at least for college. And uh, so I'm in bed. I'm asleep. And he'd come in and be like, Wadlow, Wadlow. It'd be like four in the morning, Wadlow. Hey, can I have some bread? And, uh, and then, like, as he's just taking the bread already, you know. So I ended up having to put, like, decoys in my room and uh, hide the good stuff, you know. But anyways, yeah, I, in, in spring of 2005, I met a man in New Orleans. Uh, this was right before Hurricane Katrina hit in the, in the fall of 2005. <clears throat> spring of 2005, I met a man named Pastor Mel Jones. Some of you have actually met this guy if you went with us to New Orleans um, a couple years ago on a mission trip. But I met Pastor Mel, and a little bit of his story. Pastor Mel, years before, had been an extremely successful businessman in New Orleans. I mean, successful to the point of he owned a bunch of clubs and bars. Um, he had a little talk radio spot, I guess. And, and he helped one of the uh, governors run his campaign um, to become governor. He was an extremely successful man. But then he got introduced to crack cocaine, which is like the drug of choice in New Orleans. And it ruined his life. I mean, just like that, all of it was, all, all, of his, all of his success was just thrown away. And his story is businessman to beggar because he, he ended up on the streets, homeless, and totally broke and addicted to crack. And so he lived like that for a while, but eventually um, he ended up getting put into a, um, into a halfway house, halfway program uh, that was all about introducing people to Christ and helping people find healing through Jesus. And that's exactly what happened in his life. He came to know Christ and he moved back to New Orleans feeling called to go back to New Orleans and, 
and help people in New Orleans who were in the same position he had been in just a couple years before. And so in 2005, he, uh, he bought an old crack house in a neighborhood that was plagued by crack cocaine. And he began taking men off the streets. He didn't have any money. He didn't have a job. He was just doing all this by faith. He began taking men off the streets and giving them a place to stay. And he basically um, built this program to help men overcome their addictions through the power that is offered to us in Jesus Christ. And at the time, there were about 13 men going through this program. Well, then in 2005, fall, uh, Katrina hit. And there's some incredible stories as far as... um, looking like this ministry was ruined and over to then God restoring it and, and opening up more opportunities for him to now have more men involved in the ministry. But So I, I told you I went, I, I went slash go to seminary in New Orleans and frequently I have to go down there. And um, a, a few years ago, I went down for a week-long workshop and typically in these workshops, you go from 8 a.m. till about 6 p.m. class and then afterwards you do your homework. Well, um, I, I went over and just started hanging out at, it's called Bethel Colony. I started hanging out with Pastor Mel and his, his guys over there. There are about 100 guys going through this program now. And it was so incredible to see these men who were beggars on the street because of their addictions and, and, and being completely fixed, com- being completely restored through Jesus. And so what I did while I was down there the whole week, I would just, as soon as class was over, I would go straight over there. Part of that was because their food was amazing. So I'd go over there, eat with them. But then I would just spend a couple hours there listening to these guys' stories. And, and I met some incredible guys, and I wrote them down in my journal. But just a couple of the guys I met, a guy named Sean who uh, had been addicted to crack. And he was struggling so much because he loves his wife so much, loved his wife so much, wanted to restore that relationship with her and and was now trying to figure out how God wants to use him now that he's been set free of his addiction and finishing up the program and and now knows Jesus. Met a guy named Troy. Troy had been shot in the head, point blank range, shot in the head right here. And the way the bullet went in, it, it actually ricocheted across the front of his forehead. It did not kill him, but it blinded him. And after being blinded, uh, he got addicted to uh, some different things and was now in this program. God had completely taken over his life. He was a believer in Christ, hilarious guy, um, wanted to be a stand-up comedian, uh, also an incredible poet. Met a guy named Kendrick, and at the time, uh, he had made it through the program and was now working at the seminary. No longer addicted to crack, but addicted to God's word and other books about God. And I remember him taking me to his little nook that they had at this uh, house that he was living in. And just showing me all of his books that he had been reading through and uh, borrowing from the seminary. And it was incredible to see God working in his life. A guy named Sam, he had just started the program, not yet a believer. Um, recently had become addicted to crack. Had been successful, kind of like Pastor Mel. Lost everything that he had. Found himself, there's a, there's a real tall bridge just down the road that crosses over kind of one of the bay areas. And he was walking to the top of the bridge with the plans to jump off and commit suicide. A guy pulls his car over stops him and takes him to Pastor Mel's ministry and God was in the process of breaking down all of those walls and restoring this guy's life. Met a guy named Mike and I wrote this quote down from what he said to me because it was just hilarious the way he said it. He said, when Jesus calls my name, I'm going to jump up and down like I'm in the FEMA line saying, here I am, here I am. I guess you have to be from New Orleans to understand that. Moving on. Uh, But so Friday, Incredible thing is some of you who went to New Orleans have experienced this, but on Fridays they, they have this worship time together. Um, every morning they're up at 5.30 and, and they meet in this room, all hundred of them, they have their place at their table and nobody's allowed to talk. They just have God's word open for an hour. 
And the only thing they're allowed to do is study the word and pray. And on Fridays at 6.30 or 7, something like that, they, uh, they have a time of worship together. And you have to picture this. I mean, if these 100 guys were in the same room in any other setting, they would kill each other. But you have 100 men crammed into this room, and they're about to worship God together. And I remember my first experience of this because I, I had no idea what to expect. I mean, these are like hardcore dudes off the street of New Orleans. And, uh, and so they pull out these hymnals. And the guy gets up in the front, and I guess he had been appointed worship leader, and, and they say, uh, he says, all right, open up to uh, hymn number, whatever. It's some old school, like old school hymn. And then he rolls out, no joke, this, you know those big old marching band bass drums? He rolls out this bass drum, and he's got these two sticks, and he just starts, he whips out like this, the, this hardcore, like street beat. And they start singing this old school hymn to this hardcore street beat, and I mean, these guys were worshiping, and I started worshiping, and it was awesome. But that's Pastor Mel's story. And it's cool to hear stories about guys like Pastor Mel who do this, take beggars off the street. And, but, but what about us? What are we supposed to do? What does the Bible say? And, and, and so the most clear text that I feel like we can look at tonight is one that I, I don't think any of you really want me to turn to. But it's Matthew chapter 5. Beginning in verse 38. <clears throat> if you've got it, say got it. It's like a third of you, so a couple more seconds. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, now what he says in these Three, four verses is pretty self-explanatory. You get to verse 40, you may not understand that, but he says, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Basically what he's saying is if, if anybody wants your coat, give them your shirt as well. Some of you are all like, well, what if he asked for my pants? What do I do then? I mean, what he says, I, we don't want to accept this as self-explanatory. Like we want to think that there's another underlying message here, but what he's saying, he's saying, and that's, he's saying it straight up. I mean, at this point, Jesus is being super clear. He's saying, here's what the law has said in the past, but I came to up the ante. I came to take it to a whole new level. And if you're still uncertain as to what Jesus is saying, then read the next verse, verse 42. He says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, I know as, as you're reading that, have any of you seen this text before? And, and I mean, this is a hard text to read. And I know as you're reading that, you, you got to be thinking, dude, that's crazy. And, and that's unrealistic. I mean, he says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who wants to borrow from you. That's, that's crazy. That's unrealistic. And Austin, I know some of you are thinking, Austin, I, it's, 
is you tell this story about Pastor Mel, like, that's awesome, and that grabs my emotions, but that's just not me. Like, I can't do that. And I was, as I was thinking last night and looking over my notes for, for tonight, I started to think it's easier for Pastor Mel to have the ministry that he does because he's, he's been there before. I mean, follow my train of thought there. It's easier for him to have that kind of ministry in New Orleans because he's been there before. He helps crack addicts because he used to be one. He helps people who are homeless on the street because he used to be homeless and on the street. And he knows what to do for them because he used to be one. He has patience for them and he has compassion towards them because he knows that's who he used to be. So what about us? How do we respond to beggars? What are we supposed to do? Because that's not our story, right? So what do we do? And listen to this. This, this right here is the whole reason that we bumped what we were going to talk about tonight so that we could talk about this question. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. In other words, even our best works, even our greatest deeds, the goodest things, if that's even a word that we've ever done in our life, are like nasty, dirty, raggedy rags in comparison to God's holiness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Notice the types of people that God saves. He saves the foolish. He saves the weak. He saves the low and the despised. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11 through 11 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. Our lives are plagued by addictions that we continue to go back to over and over and over, just like a dog continues to return to its vomit. Ephesians 2.1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He says, We have a nasty terminal illness. And think about this. When people are sick, like what happens? Like when the, the flu was going around like crazy or was, hopefully was, going around like crazy, if you have even like the slightest concern that somebody around you has the flu, what do you do? You back up. It's like go into quarantine, please. Or, or, the, or the movie that came out, Dallas Buyers Club, about the guy that had AIDS. You know, it, people, you know, Back then, especially, when they heard somebody had AIDS, like, they ran. They were terrified of that terminal illness. Avoided them like the plague. The Bible says that we have that terminal illness. Ephesians 2.12 says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from 
the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We were hopeless, he says. And then look at Matthew 5, 3. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is impossible for us to receive God's grace until we realize our own condition. The reality is we are the beggars. You're the beggar. I'm the beggar. We're broke. We're foolish. We're weak. We're the low and the despised. Our best clothes are filthy rags. We have a terminal illness and we're hopeless. Our wallets might be nice and fat, but our spirits are broke without Jesus. Now go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 39 through 42. And as you're looking at that thinking, dude, that's crazy what Jesus says. That's unrealistic what Jesus says. Hear this. Jesus' love is crazy and unrealistic. You look at verse 39, and he says, But I say to you, don't resist the one who's evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Though over and over in our sin we slap him on the face, he turns the other cheek. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed, foreshadowing Jesus, prophesying Jesus. Jesus was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I mean, he could have stopped the beating. He could have stopped the mocking. He could have stopped them from nailing him to the cross, but he didn't so that he could save you. That is called resolute love. It's determined, it is enduring. Verse 40, chapter 5, he says, And if anyone would, would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. He didn't just give us his coat or his shirt, he gave us his life. That's called radical love. It's not normal. Verse 41, he says, And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Jesus didn't just go one mile, and he didn't just go two miles. He traveled the insanely untravelable distance between us and God in order to save us. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says, He, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's called reaching love. Reaching love. He didn't stand at a distance and say, get on my level. He said, no, I'm going to get on your level. Verse 42 He says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You know, we beg for his grace and then we turn around and we spend it on our addictions and then we come back and we beg for more grace. But you have to understand, he doesn't just throw us spare change. When we're there begging, he doesn't just throw us 
spare chains from his pocket. He takes us off the street. He cleans us up. He gives us new clothes and he gives us new life. That's called redeeming love. He aims to cure, not just cover up. And then he says, John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Question on the table is how do we handle beggars? And he says, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus' love is resolute. His love is radical. His love is reaching and his love is redeeming. So how do we handle beggars? And the answer is love them just like Jesus loved you. So here's four just practical suggestions. Resolute love is patient, enduring, committed, and determined. So don't give up on them. Jesus didn't give up on you. Radical love, it's not normal, and neither is grace. Grace is not normal. John Bisogno, a former pastor of a big church in Houston, he said, grace exceeds the law and love outgives it. So be crazy generous. Be crazy generous. Radically generous. Generous in such a way that people look at that and say, that's not normal. C.S. Lewis, he said, it will not bother me in the hour of death to reflect that I've been had for a sucker by any number of imposters, but it would be a torment to know that one had refused even one person in need. Reaching love is not prideful, but humble. It doesn't look downward, but it looks eye to eye. So look them in the eye. Give them your fullest attention and take your time. Be wise. Be discerning, girls especially. Be safe, but understand that love isn't always safe. And then redeeming love. It aims to cure, not cover up. Money can help ease the symptoms of their problem, but Jesus and some resolute, radical, and reaching love can cure their problem. So use discernment in what you give and how you give it because the reality is sometimes helping hurts. Think about this. God doesn't always give you what you ask for, does he? He doesn't always give you what you ask for because he knows that if he gave you what you asked for, it would do more harm than it would do good. So redeeming love aims to cure, not just cover up or ease the pain temporarily or give them a shot to get through the next few hours. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.